whiskey, gin, and brandy. With a glass, I'm pretty handy. So join me for a drink, boys. Welcome to the Barfly Podcast Season 5. My name is Jeff Burkhardt, Barfly columnist for the Bay Area News Group and author of the books 20 Years Behind Bars, The Spirit of the Adventures of a Real Bartender, and its sequel, Pearl Denied. My co-host and barback is Kevin Zong, editor of The Grin Dish. Sit back and relax as we attempt to pull back the curtain on the hospitality industry. And feel free to pour yourself a beverage. I know Kevin and I will. Welcome to the Barfly Podcast. Today, we're happy to have David McPherson. David is a Bay Area lawyer that I've known for 30 plus years. We first met when he assisted me with a legal matter arising out of my ownership of a nightclub in San Rafael. Before going to law school, David was fortunate to work in the sporting goods industry and work as a wilderness mountain guide for the Outward Bound Schools, which helped support his global travels and mountain climbing. After working for two large firms in San Francisco, David's current legal practice is primarily with small businesses and individuals. Rather than specializing, he has, for 40 years, preferred being a generalist or a renaissance lawyer who can address most legal issues that arise with his clients. David has assisted many hospitality businesses, including restaurants, bars, and nightclubs, with the myriad legal issues that can arise. And trust me, there are a lot. Want to meet some lawyers? Open a bar. You'll get to. (laughs) David gave me some of the best advice I've ever received, which I'm sure he'll repeat later on. So without further ado, welcome, David. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Kevin. Before we get into some specific questions I have, though, can you give us a quick legal overview of the distinctions between operating a restaurant, bar, or nightclub compared with running other small businesses that are open to the public? Sure. Operating any hospitality, a restaurant, bar, and nightclub is going to be substantially similar to running any sort of retail operation that's open to the public. You know, you've got to choose the right entity. You have to make sure that you're that you're insured. You've got to go through the same HR and employment practices. You've got to make sure you're compliant with ADA laws. But there are distinctions that are important with hospitality. Not necessarily in this order, but ABC compliance, if you're going to be serving alcohol. Is alcohol better, beverage control. Al- yeah. Alcohol beverage control. The second is, is health and safety and food preparation compliance. Which is more complicated now that they've added the le- extra level of licensing for a- both of those. Absolutely. And, of course, in California, we know that there's lots of undocumented employees that work in hospitality, and that can cause issues. And certainly, employers have to be aware of the potential liability. And hospitality has somewhat unique lease issues. Anyone that's opened a restaurant knows the tremendous long lead time between when you locate a property that you want to open and when you actually are <laughs> opened. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, we'll be able to just turn this around in six months and, and 18 months later, they're finally having their grand opening. You know, complying with health and safety and all the food preparation requirements is not easy and, and it's a big, big investment. Well, and you're also dealing with governmental agencies that aren't necessarily business oriented. They have no impetus to do anything faster. They don't want to work fast. They want to make sure that everything is compliant right down to millimeters. They don't really care often that it's costing you $10,000 a month to make some corrections on a, on a layout of a kitchen prep area. And of course, grease traps, ventilation, all of that's very unique to hospitality. It's very expensive and causes long lead times. But I would say really at the end of the day, when, when I'm talking to people in hospitality or people who run any sort of operation that involves the public, always emphasize insurance 
insurance. <laughs> insurance. And by that, I mean, make sure that you've got adequate, comprehensive general liability insurance. Make sure that you have adequate workers' comp insurance and consider business interruption insurance as well. And when things get tight, don't let the policy lapse. <laughs> pay those premiums on time because when you fail to pay your premiums, that's when I have to get involved if there's any liability. And that changes the ball game entirely. Completely. Right? And also, a lot of times in the hospitality industry, it's about image and presentation. And that doesn't sound like that's part of that. But if you overlook that, trust me, I'm speaking from experience, that's a huge mistake. It sure is. We first met because you, you represented me in, in exactly a situation like that where my business was in trouble and I had let my insurance policy lapse and I got sued uh, by uh, three people, well, actually one person who was involved in a three-person fight. And I remember speaking to you and you had said to me that only one of them suing you? You're lucky they didn't mm -hmm. all sue you. And I said, how can the guy who started the fight sue me? And you said, they can. And I remember that was an eye-opening experience for me to realize that liability is not necessarily you doing something wrong on purpose, but just somewhat something happening in your place of business. Many people sort of don't understand the distinction between liability, that actually being found at fault and having to pay monetary damages, and the ability to file a lawsuit. Anyone can file a lawsuit for any reason. It doesn't mean that it's credible lawsuit. It could be a frivolous lawsuit. It could be that they assume that there's going to be money there because it's a business that's operating and insurance will cover some damages and they're just looking for a payday. But it doesn't mean that whatever occurred on the premises is going to turn into monetary damages. So that's that's a distinction. But if you let your policy lap, here's the thing. If Someone in the hospitality business gets sued for some sort of premises liability. And slip and falls are quite common in restaurants because, of course, food is being carried and, and food can drip and ice, whatever. Ice, ice, ice and, and if there's stairs to access restrooms or whatever, you know, there's lots of slip and falls. But also, you know, when you're serving alcohol, you, you get into situations where people have confrontations and there could be bar fights. That's obviously another one. But just generally speaking, premises liability. I mean, I've seen people who trip over um, the car stops, the concrete car stops, and it can seriously injure, you know, break a femur and they bring a lawsuit. If there's insurance as a hospitality owner, you never think about it. You simply tender that lawsuit to your broker. The broker then turns around and they have insurance defense lawyers who do this day in and day out. It's routine for them. And frankly, they, they just do a little bit of factual and gathering facts from you as a hospitality owner. And then you never think about it again. Right. If they want to settle, they'll settle for a number. It has virtually no impact on, on your premiums. But if you're not... <laughs> insured, then it all falls on you. You have to hire the lawyer. You have to go through the whole litigation process, which is expensive. And not fun, just it's, FYI, it's, for it's anyone not, out there. No, the discovery process of responding to interrogatories and yes. requests for production of documents right. can be very laborious and, and can take months, if not years. And, all and intrusive, that, too. Intrusive, keeps people awake at night. Even when it's a frivolous lawsuit, you think, oh my God, this is just going to go on forever. And it feels that way. It I mean, I, I remember one of the points uh, was a loss of consortium mm -hmm. in a lawsuit that yeah. I was involved in, which means not having sex with your marital partner. And you think about the questions that opens up for Aquilina questioning at a trial. It was very uncomfortable for, for everyone involved there. And not really the type of thing. When people say, I'm going to sue, well, you go right ahead. It's easy to get started, but it, it 
it goes off the rails pretty quick. Right. It is intrusive for the plaintiff, but of course, they're the one bringing the claim, right. so they should be prepared by their attorney. These are the kind of questions that you're going to be asked. These are the kind of records you'll have to produce to show that somehow this, this slip and fall has caused you some sort of mental distress. And right. It might turn out mm-hmm. you'd have serious problems separate from a slip and fall. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing nowadays that's very different than when, when, when I was involved in the nightclubs was cameras. Now, you, almost everything is on camera somewhere. So the idea that it's your word against their word is not as prevalent as it used to be, I think. And, and it's good because I we've had people say at my current work, say, oh, I gave you a $100 bill and you only gave me change for a 20. Go, yeah. Well, let's look at the camera. And all of a sudden they don't, oh, wait, no, wait a minute. I made a mistake, right? And they back off immediately. But that's also the case. Can get in that close? Uh, yeah. The camera? But they don't know that. Oh, they don't know okay. But everyone knows that there's cameras. Right. And there are cameras that can do that. We don't happen to have <laughs> But just the mere threat of bringing that in, and that's the whole thing with the frivolous lawsuit, is a lot of times it's just a hook to try and get money. Well, sure. Before the advent of all of these closed-circuit cameras and cell phones that are taking video inside bars and and nightclubs, it was often one person's word against another person's word and looking at general policies and what other, other witnesses might say. I recall a Southern Marin restaurant where the the valet would walk around the car and point out obvious dents, which would all be recorded so that if anybody made a claim, oh, you dented my car, the valet could say, well, no, I I pointed this out and the camera will prove it. Right. Mm. So that was, I always thought that was really smart. That is clever. I've seen that where they raise their hand. Mm. And that's the same thing. I do that like when I'm IDing somebody, I raise my hand because they don't know what I'm doing. Sure. But I can later on say, I raised my hand, and you as, can see consistently I do that. As, as you looked at right. the ID. So that means that they gave me an ID. I didn't have an ID. Is the biggest defense for the underage drinking, right? They just don't produce it. And then all of a sudden, now you're on your own. I'm a little disappointed because when I go there, you've never raised your hand. <laughs> so there's I, there's I'm another gesture for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a, you use uh, just one finger, but yes. Yeah. ABC lawsuits or claims are, are very d- tough to defend against. When they send in decoys, they're really good about how they do it. And so if you serve an underage person, you've got serious problems. You're, you're probably facing 30 to 60 days being shut down. And the bartender or server, whoever, is going to lose their job. Yeah. Right? That's typical custom is to fire that person immediately to show that you're you're mitigating the thing in the face of the ABC. Because the AB, you're right, the ABC doesn't mess around. If they have actually come in and done something like that, it can get pretty messy pretty bad. In California, serving a minor when there's a subsequent injury, that's a serious, yeah. serious problem. I think there was a $40 million recovery where uh, a 20-year-old had been served and served a lot. And then that 20-year-old got into a fight and stabbed another patron. And the patron died and it was a 40... Or no, the patron was seriously injured, stabbing. And it was a $40 million recovery. Whereas if the 20-year-old had been 22 or whatever, had been legal age, there's actually the anti-dram laws would have prevented liability from being 22-year-old. And what is the anti-dram law? Historically, in California, the dram shop laws pushed the, the liability for injury on the shop owner for serving alcohol. Well, that always produced a number of different problems. So essentially, it came out that if you have served alcohol and there's a subsequent injury caused by the person who consumed the alcohol, you are not subject to liability. You can actually do a motion for summary judgment and be dismissed from the case as the, the owner. But if you served a minor 
or and there's an exception that says where you're serving a habitual drunkard, drunk, right? You know, somebody who is clearly not just having four drinks. That's that's not enough. But somebody who's habitually drunk and it's unable to control it, take care of themselves, and you continue to serve them. That's another exception to not being subject to liability. Well, and that's an out-and-out ABC violation, too. A lot of people are unaware of that one. The habitual drunkard to serving them is illegal under California law. But the problem is defining what a habitual drunkard is. And so there are parameters for that, just like there <laughs> for for like a, a topless dancing. The, the, the parameters are very specific about what is allowed and what is not, down to almost pornographic in their descriptions, and the same thing for habitual drunkards, yeah. too. But that goes back to the, you have to take personal responsibility at some point as an individual consuming alcohol. It can't always be the other person's fault. Exactly. Right? And, that, and that was not the law when I was going to law school, you right. know, some almost 40 years ago, because there was a case, Vasily versus Singer, I think it was, that squarely put the liability on the restaurant that was serving the alcohol. And the legislature just said, you know, that's that's not right. It's the person who's consumed the alcohol who should take primary responsibility for their conduct if it causes an injury. And so that that's when they came up with a business and professions code. I think it's 25, 621 or right in that area that says that the bar owner, the restaurant owner, the nightclub that's serving the alcohol is not subject to liability unless... It's a minor or an habitual drunk. And also, if you go over the overboard, if you serve someone thirty-two drinks, then there you, you're going to have you're going to have gross negligence involved in that. That's that's a negligent behavior. So that's why in a lot of cases, five or six drinks is really dangerous ground to be on because you can't fall back on that. Because as an alcohol server, you should have known better than sure. that. And that's part of the, the new RBS thing. So who's liable then? Is it the bartender who overserved the customer hey, or? Hey. Watch with your over-serving <laughs> comments. <laughs> Over-served. Yeah, you can't see the quotation marks. Or is it uh, the business owner or is it both? Because I've seen bartenders who knowingly over-serve, quotes, certain customers, and they know that they're going to get into a car. So who's liable? The, the law in California, as it is in all states, is respondeat superior, meaning that the employer is responsible for the conduct of its employees. Mm-hmm. So sure, if, if there was a, uh, an accident with an overserved patron, the bartender might be named, but it's not necessary to name the bartender because the owner and their insurance, mm-hmm. insurance, insurance, right. is going to be responsible for any negligence and the injuries that happened. But you know, I've, I've seen where bouncers were named in the lawsuit because it's very specific intentional conduct by a bouncer that went too far. But the bouncer obviously is not going to have his or her own separate insurance policy. It'll always come back to the hospitality owner and their insurance Hmm. that will cover any damages. You can be sued individually too, right? So there are extenuating circumstances for that. And that gets to the minor thing. My understanding is as a bartender, if you intentionally serve a minor, if you don't check an ID and that person turns out to be underage, and they have an accident, you can be sued personally for that. I think that's part of the same thing you're talking about there. It, it is. And, you know, it, you use the word intentional. It wouldn't require intentionally serving. It would be the negligence of failing to verify right. that someone was 21 and then continuing to serve them. C- certainly, there are c- probably times when somebody has been serving someone that they know, know that they're not 21. They know they have a fake ID, but they, they like them and they serve them. But that's going to be very unusual. It's typically just somebody that's busy or accepted a, a fake ID that should have been caught. Everything's not as clear as it, as it seems. And again, not as easy as it seems because everyone's covered under different insurance or has different parameters or different 
different goals. And that's a lot of the things in the hospitality industry is you've got to line up all those, Make sh- and as a business owner, you've got to make sure that everyone is content. You can't just assume that the bouncer is doing what, because maybe he likes that person, right? And is expecting something on the side for that, or the same with a bartender, right? And that, that happens a lot in the hospitality industry, not only from the outside, the patron suing, but from the inside, you've got to be cautious about who you hire and who you put in those positions, because you can get in a lot of trouble that way. In construction, they have almost weekly safety briefings where they go over certain rules that are good policy, good procedures. And in the hospitality business, probably not as much, but they should be going over it twice a year. All kinds of procedures dealing with what we're talking about, potential uh, liability for serving alcohol, potential liability for a bouncer who is overly aggressive and used something that was beyond the bare minimum right. that was necessary. Right. And many other, you know, course the the food prep issues that can get you shut down i would imagine you do this initial training of an employee and then you expect them to pick up all the other rules and there's not really a a nice thick manual that is reviewed on a regular basis i think california has stepped up to that a little bit like the rbs the responsible beverage service thing and the food certified food handler service because those are you have to get those renewed and you have to retake a test and the test isn't so much to show you what you what you do know but what you don't know Mm -hmm. that what is the target range for for bacteria what is you know what are the rules regarding this what to look for and so it, it creates a little better thing but even even within the business they could do a better job of that. But the problem with the hospitality industry is it's very transient. I mean, the average career span for someone at a restaurant is seven, eight months, mm-hmm. right? And then they cycle through. And there are people who stay in the industry a long period of time, but there's a lot of people who just kind of do it for the summer or do it for whatever. So that I think that's where a lot of that kind of stuff leaks through. And, you know, the ABC, too, they have other things to do. And my understanding with them is that they're a complaint-driven agency. So unless somebody actually says, hey, I think these guys are doing this, they're not going to really go down there and try and find that out. That's absolutely true. Um, what about ADA compliance? It seems to come up a lot. I know that there's a, one person in particular in our area who's infamous, maybe this best word to describe it, of going into places, who happens to be a disabled person himself who goes into restaurants and starts off friendly <laughs> and, you know, introduces himself and then he comes back and files a complaint that it's not wheelchair accessible or whatever. And then somehow there's threat of a lawsuit or there is a lawsuit and usually what I've heard is that the restaurant owner just wants to settle it and get it taken care of. Absolutely. This has been a hot topic in hospitality for many, many, many years. I don't know if you remember Clint Eastwood. Not the Hog's Breath Inn, but he has a separate Mission Ranch. Mission Ranch. Yeah. Mission Ranch. And it was that type of setup. Virtually all of the ADA lawsuits are brought by professional plaintiffs who are disabled. And it really doesn't matter historically that they were not denied service. If they find a violation, they can bring the lawsuit and then, of course, it has to be corrected and then there's a question of damages to that plaintiff. And Clint Eastwood took a stand on it. He was so furious because he knew he was being set up. He knew this person had not been denied services, but there were certain minor violations at the Mission Ranch and he testified before Congress to try and get Congress to change the ADA. He lost the case in the sense that the jury found that there were minor violations of the ADA, but they awarded nominal damages that may have been like $1 to the plaintiff for the plaintiff's lack of service at at the Mission Ranch. But 
the attorney's fees were well over a million dollars that had to be paid. And so that's the problem. So typically, even when you can see that the person is not a regular patron or is not even wasn't really a patron at all, they did sort of a drive-by and then you get this federal lawsuit. They're almost all the lawsuits are being filed in federal court because they, they're accustomed to using it under the ADA versus the equivalent California law. The smartest thing that a restaurant owner can do is to say, stop, as soon as that lawsuit is filed. You get in a an inspector who determines what compliance is off, whether you know the door is a half an inch too narrow, there's not a section of the bar that can be folded down so that a person in a wheelchair can, can have access at the bar. Whatever it is, you immediately do that construction and then you go, if you have to do anything in the court, you say, it's been in three weeks, we completely fixed the, the problems that they're complaining about. So we want to settle and we want to settle now. So there isn't this protracted litigation, which can be you know hundreds of thousands right. of dollars. You might be able to do the correct, the ADA violations, lack of access for $20,000, maybe $10,000. Right. I mean, I've seen cases where in retail, where the, the racks that were holding clothes were too close together so that a person standing could walk between them, but a person in a wheelchair couldn't. So all you had to do was to rearrange the rack well, that can be done overnight. So that's always the approach is don't fight the the lawsuit. Determine what's credible about the, the claims, fix it immediately, and then settle it. And that way you can get out of it for maybe two to four thousand dollars being paid to the the attorney and maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars being paid to the uh, person who actually filed the lawsuit. But it's it's people use the word cottage industry. <laughs> I think they have there was like one person in Marin, I'm trying to remember their name. And they well, let's not say that. You could certainly find it by Googling. And, yes. and they, they file about 500 cases a year. And, right? and think about that. So yeah. if that's $1,000 Mm-hmm. A case. Yeah. That's a good living. It is a good living. Yeah, they've, they've documented. And that's at just $1,000 a case. Right. right. Every so often, you'll you'll have a, there was a dry cleaners that turned around and cross-complained, basically saying this was a fraud, a fraud setup, and they went after the attorneys. The attorneys were using in-house people, and the in-house people were not really disabled. They were just claiming to be disabled. So there oh, are wow. cases right. where it's been turned on its head, mm-hmm. and it, where it was really unjust. But at the end of the day, the ADA has been around for over 30 years. And so bringing your business into compliance should be a given and it should be done at, at the beginning. And then, of course, every few years, you know, you determine if there's anything that's changed, continue to make sure your facility has full access. The last question is, what is the biggest mistake people make in a liability lawsuit? Uh, lack of insurance. Lack of insurance. Lack of insurance by far and away is the single biggest mistake anyone in hospitality or anyone that has a business that's open to the public. Insurance will cover your defense costs, meaning we'll pay for your defense lawyers. Insurance will cover damages. And, you know, probably you should have, you know, something like, even for a smaller restaurant, you should have at least $3 million to $5 million with a, an umbrella policy that goes up above that. If someone dies on your premises, you know, you could be looking at $10 million or, or more in damages. And you want to make sure that you have adequate coverage. So, yeah, don't let your, your policy lapse and you'll be able to sleep well at night. Having said that, when a hospitality owner has a choice between being able to 
buy liquor and he's going through a slow period or it's COVID or there's some construction going on or a major employer has left the area and you know, you're know you really slow. You've got a choice between paying your insurance premium and making sure that you still have some employees and you still have some product to serve. That's when you make those mistakes and you let your policy lapse and that's when you get to know me. <laughs> so don't worry about tomorrow. Take it for today. Please join us next time where we welcome industry insiders and industry outsiders to talk about the state of the restaurant and bar business. My name is Jeff Burkhart. Thanks for listening. Have a drink on me.